And we're the Boo Crew. Welcome to episode 95. We're celebrating a horror classic that changed the game just over 20 years ago. One of the creators of the Blair Witch Project. You're hanging out with multi-award winning writer, director, producer, and editor, Daniel Myrick. Hear the unbelievably cool story about how one of the most influential movies in horror cinema was conceived. You'll get into the details from filming, how they directed a film with no script, creating the shocking ending, and fooling and terrifying a nation. You'll also learn about Daniel's recent work, including his new UFO film, Skyman, that had its premiere at the Austin Film Festival this past October. At time of release, more festival screenings to come. Visit SkymanTheMovie.com. Now, let's venture into the Black Hills. Hey, this is Daniel Myrick. Stand in the corner and face the wall. Burkittsville's favorite podcast, The Boo Crew, is on now. This area's been haunted by that old woman for oh, years. I don't know why you have to have every conversation on video. Because we're making a documentary. Not about us getting lost. We're making a documentary about a witch. I don't. Lost? Admit that first. No, I know we're not lost. They're all over the place. How do we know it was people? Well, even if it wasn't, I'm not going to play with that either. And it's all because of me that we're here now. (laughs) Hungry. And cold. And hunted. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. In the summer of 1999, a film was released that changed absolutely everything. It really was a monumental event. Not only did it pioneer the found footage genre, it paved the way for what became viral marketing. The movie's mythology being spread some six months before it was screened. There are not many films in the history of cinema that have had as much direct impact on the horror genre or mainstream culture. A film that even changed the way we got scared at the movies, its effects arguably carrying on into the works of James Wan and Mike Flanagan and quite literally anyone who has picked up a camera after its release. It has also become a part of the dialogue and continues to be a legendary example of cinematic creativity. It's also the most successful indie film of all time. We celebrate 20 years of the Blair Witch Project with one of its creators, director and writer Daniel Myrick. Thank you for joining us, my man. Yeah. Great to be here, guys. So cool. Wow. Applaud. Awesome. It comes with an audience. No, yep. This is great. It's not even a laugh track. We were right in the pocket for this film to effectively change all of our lives, as it was not only a terrifying movie, But because there was so much immersive lore and dense mythology and mystique surrounding it just made it a magical experience to go through. What were the films that you watched growing up that really impacted you? Wow. I mean, there were there were a lot. I I definitely uh, was very much into the Omen series. The Exorcist was a big one, um, I think was for a lot of people. The Shining was probably one of my all time favorites. Jacob's Ladder. It sure, had a yeah. huge, huge yeah. effect on me in those days. There was a smaller B-movie called It's Alive that uh, really scared the shit out of me. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, growing up, I, you know, 
my takeaway from a lot of those movies is I never really thought of them necessarily as horror films. There wasn't, wasn't even really a horror genre then. They were just great movies. When you look at The Exorcist or The Shining, they're amazing character studies. And right. they're so well written and so well executed and so well shot. And they're just fantastic films, you know, no matter what genre you, you think of them. But those, you know, of course, Jaws was another big one. So yeah, that informed so much of what, what I became as a filmmaker. I reference those films to this day. Do you remember the first one you saw? The first film I saw? Yeah, a horror film. Oh, that's a good question. The first horror film. I mean, I I distinctly remember watching a lot of B-horror stuff. I'm trying to remember the names. Some of them, I don't even remember the names of them. But It's Alive was one of the first ones I saw. That goes back pretty far. How were you being exposed to these? Is this like the things that were on TV? Or was there a theater that you would well, go there to were, often? Yeah, there, was, there was a theater in town we'd go to. And back in those days, it would come out in the theater for just a couple of weeks. And right. that was basically it. And if you didn't catch it, you didn't catch it. Um, unless there was a big Hollywood release like The Shining or something like that. Right. Then it would make another round. And... And then, of course, the DVD came later, so you would be able to pick it up on DVD. But, um, but yeah, if you didn't catch it in the theater, you sort of, all you did was you would hear your friends talk about it in school. You're like, oh, I missed out. Because, you know, those <laughs> right. kinds of movies, like It's Alive and those kinds of things, they wouldn't play them on TV. That's going pretty far back for me, I think. It was one of the first ones that, like, really had an impact on me. I mean, I probably saw others, but th that one, I mean, I remember the poster, the one sheet, the bassinet with that claw. <laughs> right. I mean, it was just... I had nightmares about that one. Before the Blair Witch days, what did kind of your transition into a filmmaker look like? Well, I started early on when I was about 13 or 14 as a photographer. I mean, you know, loose that's a loose definition, but I, my mom bought me a camera, a, an old DSLR camera, a little nice. Fujinon camera. So I learned sort of like the language of film and trying to tell story with visually with, with a camera back in those days. And then um, when I was around... I guess 15 or 16 video just sort of started coming to its own. So I got my hands on a, a used video camera. So I was able to like shoot, you know, small little shorts. And was it like 16 millimeter or a... there was video and I, oh, I had a okay. super eight camera as well. My first film film was a movie called skateboarders, which was not really a movie at all. It was just me and my friends, you know, skateboarding in our driveway, but, <laughs> but we shot it on Super 8 and we, you know, sort of loosely cut it together. But when I got the video camera, it allowed me to so much more freedom. I could really shoot a whole bunch of stuff and I just needed VHS tape so right. I could, I could shoot a whole bunch of stuff. So I was learning, you know, just by trial and error, you know, just shooting stuff and learning the, kind of the language of editing. And from there, um, as time moved on, I banged around in commercial doing commercial jobs as I got older. And then I heard about the University of Central Florida in Orlando doing an inaugural film program. And I'm like, oh man, I, this, this is like a legit film program. I could learn how to make movies. So they required a reel, you know, and an essay. So I put together all this bad video I shot and I wrote up this essay as to why I wanted to be a filmmaker. And sent it in and they only chose 30 people out of the whole country and I chose I was one of them that's oh, cool wow. so I was like oh man so I <laughs> sold great. my car I sold everything I owned got a roommate and jetted up I mean you know zipped up to central Florida and went to film school and that's where I really got immersed in making movies for real 
and really started taking it super seriously. And that's where I met Ed and the guys. And, and uh, it was just a great time in my life back in those days. It was really a very creative time for us. So was um, the concept of Blair Witch something that existed while you guys were at school? More or less. I mean, yeah. Ed, Ed and I in particular sort of like recognized each other's talents. And I thought he was a really good filmmaker. And as we started like getting to know each other, we really hit it off. He, we, we both have sort of the same kind of sense of humor. And, and uh, we have a really good creative collaboration with each other. So we started saying, let's, you know, let's do, let's partner up on some projects in film school. So we did that. We, we did this small, short little movie called Fortune, which we never ended up finishing, but it was about a fortune teller that things go real bad during a kind of a seance. And so we were partnering on stuff like that. And as we were doing production and hanging out and writing scripts and stuff like that, we'd brainstorm on other ideas. And, and we kind of found out that we were both sort of um, big fans of those old In Search Of shows yeah, with, yeah. Leonard, with Leonard Nimoy right, you know, right. narrating and the ancient astronauts shows and um, another big influence was Legend of Boggy Creek which we both really liked a lot so we said you know it'd be cool to do a horror movie that's sort of like a documentary and one of the first scenes that came to mind was the house in the woods we were just probably sitting around stoned one night so you know how creepy it would be to be walking through the woods, it's dark, and you just come through the trees, and there's this house, this run-down, condemned house sitting in the middle of the woods. Like, what the hell is this house doing there? Now, how is that not creepy, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. That's so creepy. Yeah. That's so creepy. Yeah. I mean, instinctually, that's just creepy. So, then we said, imagine being an audience member where it's sort of like a documentary and you're just being forced to go into this house. You can't turn away. Right. There's no convenient cuts. There's no safety net that normal narrative filmmaking gives you. You right. don't cut away to a reaction shot. You're just stuck in this POV going into this house. And that was really the nugget, the kernel of creativity that Blair Witch sort of blossomed from. That was that scene and like, how do we do a whole movie that makes you feel that way? So yeah, as, as time moved on, we, we expanded on that notion, that idea. It's said, well, maybe we, it's, a, it's a group, it's an ex expedition going out into the woods looking for a cult, right? And the idea for quite a while, the premise for quite a while. And then we sort of trimmed it down. So well, let's just make it like filmmakers kind of exploring this mythology. And so that sort of, Became three filmmakers, which is originally three guys that were going out there. The mythology was some local folklore. And then, um, then we came up with the idea that they disappeared and all that's left is their film, um, which was sort of the big turning point for us. And then suddenly everything kind of opened up and go, oh, that could be so cool. Because now you're looking at all this footage sort of post-mortem, right? Yeah. You know the people <laughs> that shot it are gone, and now you're just sitting along for the ride to see how they disappeared, right? So yeah, it was, it was an organic process early on, came up with the initial nugget of that scene in film school, and then over time it developed and developed and developed. And, and with the collaboration and help from the other guys, our other friends like Greg Hale, who's our producer on it, and Ben Rock was the art director, and... Um, they chimed in with some of the backstory and stuff like that and helped out, help, helping us develop the, the overall story. So it was a real collaboration on a lot of levels. So where did the idea to, you know, incorporate the witch? Because as I recall, at that time, witches were not in season. 
It's no, I mean, it's, you know, we, it's one of those we, things where, like, you know, it's kind of like, I can't remember what was going on in the nineties. I mean, it was post slasher in the nineties around then. I could tell you exactly what was going on. It was like a lot of CGI, CGI movies right. and yeah. then a lot of like teen beautiful model you yeah. know, movies like the scream Two. I know what you did last summer. Right. Like, that go, kind of like stuff. Go, ghost right. ship just came out then that that's as right. well. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Said, yeah, that's right. Yeah. A lot of CGI. But then all of a sudden stuff. here's a witch movie. It's hard to describe how much sort of theory went into what we did for Blair because the witch mythology, we wanted it to be a little bit on the hokey side. If you know what I mean, it was like, that's an area of the country where the Salem witch trials are sort of in that area. There's a lot of civil war folklore in that area. So we wanted to kind of pull from that recipe that's already there. So there's a lot of superstition in that area of the country up in the Northeast and in in Maryland and that area. So we, so we wanted something that felt like it was just pulled right from that area. And so we went with like this witch folklore that that would be something that Heather would be doing a a report about. Right. So then it became really just an excuse to get three people out in the woods and shit fucks with them. Right. So we used that Blair, Witch mythology as sort of a composite of a lot of, mythologies that already existed and even the name blair there's like a blair high school up in that area and there actually there's a blair high school in pasadena where i used to live (laughs) so it's fairly common name and so we wanted it to be something that was sort of common enough where people would go yeah i think i've heard of that story it's generic enough to where i think i've heard of that blair witch story somewhere nothing too specific or too far out there that they go i've never this is something i've never heard of so we've had people Actually, there's a very famous scene in the movie where someone recalls a Blair Witch story and they, it was completely improvised. So yeah, that was sort of our, our kind of modus operandi, if you will, that we were looking for a backdrop, a mythology that was sort of generic enough to where you would kind of think you've heard it before. It would be a great sort of backdrop and, um, you know, a story uh, premise that Heather would want to do as her own project. Now, was that always in the genesis and the DNA of this to make it believable, like that it actually happened? Yeah, that was from from very early on. Part of what Ed and I felt made films like Legend of Boggy Creek or kind of the creep. I was a big like when I was like 13 or 14. like UFOs were all in the zeitgeist mm-hmm. and Bigfoot was all in the zeitgeist. Right. And I had a UFO club and like my movie, I just finished doing Skyman is a, is a, a movie about a guy that was, had an ex, a UFO experience. So I, I love that subculture, but what makes those photographs of the day so creepy and so like unsettling is that they're grainy black and white shots. Like, could it be a hubcap or could it be a real flying saucer, <laughs> right. Right? right? Is that is that blurry little image in the woods? Is that Bigfoot or is it some guy with right. a beard, you know? <laughs> so it's that ambiguity that we wanted to kind of maintain. And that sense of realism works on a different part of your brain, a different kind of fear component of your brain when you can't clearly define what's out there. So we wanted to maintain that sense of of realism all the way through the process. Anything that felt contrived or was telegraphing that it was premeditated, we we had to get rid of or think through the process and say, let's not shoot it that way. Even with the casting process, we wanted to make sure we had actors that were great improvisational actors. And I mean, you know, you've seen some of those interviews like in front of Walmart 
where they're interviewing some guy. So what did you think of your shopping experience? It's, it's obviously an actor. Yeah. <laughs> Too damn good. <laughs> I mean, like, straight out of central yeah. casting. Like, who's this? I got some hot chick or something. Like, yeah. Well, I thought it was a great experience at Walmart. Right. I said, you're not, you didn't just bump into that person. <laughs> so we wanted to avoid all those tropes, right? And so we had to really think through the theory of what makes a narrative film a narrative film and what makes a documentary a documentary. And have this sort of overlap hybrid between the two so we can control the narrative, but still feel like a documentary. It's so, so. fascinating because you guys are filmmakers and with all this knowledge of, okay, F-stops and shutter and lighting and, you know, technique and film and, you know, and now you casted three actors who are the filmmakers. Mm. So it's kind of like, whoa, it's like you're passing the torch to novices. Well, and that was part of the design right it, it needed to look like it was shot by amateurs right and if it was too well polished and if the camera was catching the scene the way we one of the toughest parts for ed and i as directors and filmmakers is to kind of resist the urge to over direct it right to resist the urge of doing what we've been taught for the last three right. years in film school <laughs> yeah. right yeah this is breaking all the rules breaking yeah. the rules and let and trust the actors and hope that what they shot on camera would be what we, there would be a, a second or two of really good stuff in there. So how do you do that? Well, you cast really good actors, you set a great stage, you yep. give a good story and backstory, and then you let them do their thing. And then within that recipe, there's going to be nuggets of greatness. And that's what we trusted. And that's how documentaries are shot. Yes. Yeah. In the end of the day, you really direct them in the edit. You take the, play, the, the moments that really work and tell your story. And that's where you make your film from. So we sort of did the same thing with Blair. We didn't know if it was going to work, but that was our, yes. that was our strategy. Leo and I were working at K-Rock yes. at the time. Yes, we were. And somehow we got a tape, right? Yeah, we, got a, we got a tape and then that led us to the website. Yes. Right. Okay. So I got the tape from a friend who told me it was real. Yep. And yeah. I completely believed it was real. And I showed my mom who was like, oh my gosh, like she was horrified. She was like, oh my God, what's going on? These poor people. Like, I think. <laughs> To this day, she still is like, where are they? Did they ever find them? She's like senile at this point, but I'm pretty sure she's like convinced. It was so crazy that was that was pulled off and it was so smart and brilliant. Did you realize how big this was going to be in its inception? No, I mean... I think Ed and I both felt we had a cool concept because you sort of know... When you've got a really great premise, when you just pitch the one-line elevator speech to someone and they go, oh, that's cool. I really right. like it. And you get a good reaction. So you know you've got some some nugget of something cool there. And right. it's just, so we felt good about that. But we never could have anticipated how big it became. I mean, it was like our hope going into Sundance was like, we just hope we can sell it, maybe get a TV deal out of it and have this sort of you know, springboard to our next project sort of thing. You know, we were getting a lot of talk and buzz, but we had no reference point. It was our first feature film. So we went into Sundance and there's, you know, premiering at the Egyptian theater and there's a line around the theater like, oh, what's this? What's so hard about this? This is easy. <laughs> you know, and we had no idea. And 
once it, it came out and blew up and we started, it started to sink in for us that now we're going to Cannes and they put Ed and I on a panel there with like Ron Howard and, and who else? On, John Sales was on the panel. Oh, oh, wow. Spike Lee. And we're like, Ed and I and I are like, what are we doing here? <laughs> <laughs> we're like bookends. Like, all right, you know, we'll help. We'll give them new water or something. But so that's, you know, when it started becoming sort of surreal for us that, yeah. that um, it just became a lot bigger than anything that we anticipated. And by that time we were just along for the ride. So, so I know that the website went up about a year before the movie release. Yeah. Yeah. So, close to that. At that time, when Lauren and I discovered yeah. that website, we were on a daily mm. because yeah. at first it was just kind of like missing. You're right. Show the you know the pictures, and then it was like maybe a week later it was like a little more backstory or a little story on one of them, yeah. or last year photos or invest or police report or right. evidence collection or something, and it had these weird you know sounds that you hear, you hear in the you hear in the movie, and it was like you were just glued to the computer mm-hmm. reading everything you could, and then you're like okay well well refresh you know like what's next you know mm-hmm. anything, anything here you know, every day we're checking you know, but it's so fascinating because this is at the time before you could fact check on the internet really. Yeah, I mean, it was it was right at that right time when the internet was sort of in its infancy and people sort of like took whatever was on the internet as sort of gospel. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and you're right. You couldn't really Google anything and fact check or, or, or anything like that. And there wasn't social media where people could like bash you or troll you or anything like that. So right. what we ended up getting is just a lot of people like yourself that liked the content that was getting put up there and dialing in. And we got a lot of feedback from, from folks. Um, I have to give a lot of credit to John Pearson, who was the producer's rep up into that time. He helped discover Kevin Smith with clerks and Spike Lee and all. And he had a show called split screen on Bravo back in those days where he would do shorts that incorporated a lot of filmmakers shorts and it was pretty popular show. And I got on as a cameraman for one of the shows he did in Orlando. And we had shot this little eight minute proof of concept reel for Blair Witch. And I got to know John as, Hey John, I know it's my last day with you, but could you check out our little Blair Witch reel? He goes, sure. I'll check it out. I know you must get a thousand of these, but you know, just give it a look. So like a week later he called me and said, Dan, is this, is this real? <laughs> and I did. And I laughed. I go, no, John, it's all fake. This is awesome. Can I put it on my show? So he ended up airing that little eight minute reel as one of the split screen shows as a cliffhanger on his first season. And we were like, holy, we thought we hit the mother load. Right. right. So based off that showing, he got bombarded on his website. Uh, he had, you remember the old forums and stuff. He, he yeah. got bombarded. His forums got bombarded. And John called us and said, you guys need to start your own website. I need to steer these people over to you. So that was our initial rush of people and dialing into our website. So Ed had experience building websites. So he got up and running. We had shot a lot of augmenting content for the, for the movie. Um, but that first season, we hadn't shot the movie yet. We had just shot that eight minute reel and got everyone sort of wet their whistle and then what was on the reel by the way it was completely contrived greg hale and i produced it and it was it was a a combination of still photos we just stuck we we grabbed from the web of people (laughs) lost in the woods and completely different people we didn't we hadn't cast anything so it was just a proof of concept of the story the backstory and that hacks and films had just found this film 
and we were going to reveal it to the world once we cut it all together. Had all spooky music behind it and everything. So it was pretty effective. And, oh. and we initially did this to kind of raise money. And like it said, we, our logic was, well, if we could fool a room full of dentists with this eight minute reel, then we'll be able to fool them with a the whole movie. And that was sort of our pitch. But John took that reel and put it up as an episode on his show and, and paid us a little money for the rights to it. And that kind of got us going. And, and so that following October, we shot the actual movie. And then the next season, season two, they let off with a, a, a revised cut of that same episode where we had some footage from the film. Whoa. Is that where yeah. the curse of the Blair Witch, when, when was no, that? That was later. That, that was, was that, actually after? Yeah, that was, that was later because... <laughs> Our, our initial idea for the movie was to that the found footage portion of the film was just going to constitute maybe 20 minutes of the finished movie. It was going to be more like a standard documentary where we have talking heads and experts and analysis of the footage and, you know, like you would see on History Channel. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. So we shot a bunch of extra stuff of, of, of talking heads and we've got film cans being unearthed and we a lot of content. We went to Sanford, Florida and shot like. Rustin Parr, black and white footage of Rustin Parr being jailed and put on trial and all that stuff. And, um, but it ended up not making the cut because we just realized that we had a whole narrative story in just the found footage. Wow. So that was a big turning point for us in the edit process. But we all also had all this great other footage. Yeah. yeah. So the Sci-Fi Channel gave us a call and said, hey, we'd love to do a complimentary component show to the movie that's about to come out in two weeks and said would you want to do the curse of blair witch and we're like yeah because we have all this extra footage so it was like we were able to have our cake and eat it too we could have the movie as a standalone found footage film that you don't know where the hell it came from or if you wanted to watch the sci-fi channel show curse of the blair witch like before the movie came out you could do that and have all the backstory in your head when you went in to see the actual feature and then ultimately when the film came out on DVD, it was a two VHS set. It had Curse of the Blair Witch and the movie in a wrapped box set, which is pretty cool. So in Sci-Fi Channel, it was like their highest rated show at the time. So it was a, kind of a good one-two punch for us. Yeah, yeah, that really perpetuated the myth. I mean, it had like talks to the people's parents yeah. and yeah, it just yeah. really plays as like a real deal thing. Yeah. It was yeah. amazing. It was, I mean, the fact that my mom was at like, lunch at cheesecake factory in beverly hills like talking like her 70 year old friends like oh my gosh they're missing like they were all involved like my demographic and like an elderly demographic <laughs> no, were I mean, worried right. about these three people i, I mean, was in saint augustine with my with my then girlfriend who's my, now my wife julia and we're at this restaurant in saint augustine and it was that with these two elderly African-American women, women waiting in line to get a table. And I hear them talking about the Blair Witch. Did you hear yeah. about those kids? That guy's son? like, and they're right. amazing, right? Like, I, I mean, maybe from a couple of teenagers, but it's like, then I knew we were on to something Is yeah. it because yeah. it was like, you've got people outside your demographic that's, that are talking about the movies so soon after the release. And then I remember it was probably, I don't know, a few weeks after it, it, it went wide. And this movie theater that my wife and, all, and I always used to go to is called Movie Co., which is in like the heart of International Drive in Disney World, Orlando. Sure. Huge, like, you know, it's like a 24 screen multiplex or whatever. 
And we went there, and we're just hanging out, and I looked at the marquee, and Blair was on five screens. Whoa, <laughs> and I'm like, geez. what's going on? <laughs> On five screens, <laughs> wow. and, and I took a picture of it, and I still have it to this day. Like I just, I, it was just unlike anything before or since. Yeah, you know, it's just five screens. So yeah, it was, it was quite quite the ride. But but getting back to the original question, no, we had no idea that it was going to be that big. I think one of the things that led itself to the credibility of the the whole story too, and the whole idea was. How, just how deep you guys let the rabbit hole go as far as the mythology, how thought out it was yes. to the point where yeah. I remember thinking, there's no way this is made up. There's so many levels of yeah. the story. There's Rustin Parr, there's Coffin Rock, yeah. there's Ellie Kedward, there's all this stuff to consume. There's dossiers. I remember I had a Blair Witch book dossier with yep. newspaper clippings and all this stuff. You just, you know, your your gut reaction is there's no way anyone would fake all this. It's way too much work. Yeah, you know? there was, and it, it's weird because it sort of like grew we scaled up as the demand scaled up. Right. So originally it was like we had a loose idea of what the mythology was. It was Ellie Kedward back in, you know, the 1700s. She was banished from banished from her village. She was bloodletting children and she was accused of being a witch. And, sort of, and again, we're just pulling pages out of the old Salem witch trial right. stuff, right? <laughs> so we had this loose kind of cobbled together backstory to help set our modern day Heather Donahue project within, right? And as more people online asked us and started drilling down and wanting to know more about, so where did this take place and who's Ellie Kedward? Well, we had to answer. We had to go, <laughs> right. well, and now we're obligated. We've, we've got this ball rolling. <laughs> now we're obligated to fill out more and more between the lines because people were asking. But that was the fun part. And then, then I remember like Ed and I were, were kind of talking about how cool it would be if the, it was sort of this like almost taken uh, you know inspiration from the bermuda triangle like it, it seems like every you know several years something happens out there it's not an everyday occurrence you can cruise through the bermuda triangle and nothing happens you know hundreds of boats will go through and then one one day something weird happens yeah right so we sort of like we we're inspired by that and so well maybe it's sort of this episodic thing like every 40 years or so something takes place like the like the the supernatural presence out there awakens and some weird shit happens. So that's when we came up with the Eileen Treacle story and the Rustin Parr. So it's about every 40 or so years, something weird happens. And our story, the three filmmakers in the woods, is just the latest in a whole series of episodes. So that enabled us to sort of like focus our attention on these, these several episodic stories and not have to fill in the blanks for, for you know, 200 years of, of right. stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. But, um, so yeah, and and then we even, you know, implied, Ed and I wrote a script, uh, a sequel script, it's still sort of on the shelf over at Lionsgate, but we, we even implied that it goes before the Ellie Kedward story. Oh, wow. That the Ellie Kedward story is just an episode. So Native American folklore has got stuff that went on out in the Black Hills as well. So that sort of gets unearthed, like, oh, shit, this goes even farther back than we thought. So that's between us and the room, right? But <laughs> <laughs> Not anymore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Are you listening, Lions? <laughs> so I want to know, I, I, you know, I want to hear about heading into the woods with these kids and what you had ready as far as being directors, writing the concept of what was going to happen, and then directing them into what 
transpired. How did that look? Well, we went in with a, a sort of a game plan. Ed and I had a we had a kind of a loose script put together. I mean, it's fairly detailed as far as the the moment to moment hourly kind of progress. We just didn't have dialogue. We wanted the actors to come up with their own dialogue, but we were, it was pretty well mapped out from from an outline standpoint. So we kind of knew sort of what we wanted to shoot except for the ending we didn't come up with the ending until like three days before we started shooting no way but yeah but we went out about a month in advance and seneca creek state park kind of allowed us to use their whole park which was great wow and and so we were sort of coming up with with a methodology of how do we allow the actors to stay in character as much as possible again taking a page out of like we wanted to feel authentic and real and not scripted. And Greg Hale, who used to be in the military, our producer, said, you know, they have these hunting GPS, handheld GPS gadgets that allow you to kind of put a waypoint no matter where you are on the planet. And you can go right back to that same spot, like within 10 feet. And we said, that's great because we could just go out in the woods and map out where all the campsites should be and know exactly where they are and allow the actors to kind of, we've got two hit sets we marked all the waypoints with one and then we downloaded all those waypoints into their gps so they were able to navigate through the woods without being aided by a crew oh that's cool and they could get to the waypoint and they would see a milk crate there with new supplies new batteries for their cameras they were instructed to dump off their old tapes that they used up in 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 the crate and there's a bicycle flag there so they knew they were at the right spot and that's where they're instructed to set up camp and that's where we had all the gags set up, right? We were all, you know, our base camp was nearby and we were hunkered down in the weeds. We could listen to their performances and all that. So that enabled us to let them be as much in character as possible. Obviously, they knew they were in a movie and we had to kind of intervene at times, but it did allow them to sort of like traipse through the woods and not have to be, not have to follow us or we had to guide them or anything. They could just go from point A to point B and let inspiration happen as they went along. That was a big kind of turning point for us that allowed us to give them a lot of freedom. And, and, and with that kind of freedom, they were able to stay in character for a lot more than if it was a normal shoot. And, and we could premeditate where the location would be. And in each one of these baskets, we had these little, you remember the old 35 millimeter plastic film container? Mm-hmm. Yes. So we had three of those each labeled with each actor and inside each one of those we had a directing note so they they were instructed to open when they got to the crate they'd open up the directing note and read it and they they weren't allowed to show each other's each notes they had to kind of keep it to themselves and we would have a note this would be an example i've said this a bunch of times but we would tell like heather would read her note and it would say something like you're going to go south all day long don't you don't give a damn what anyone says. You're going south. You know that's where the car is. So don't take no for an answer. And then we have a note to Mike or Josh and say, "Dude, sometime in the afternoon, you got to say fuck this. I'm not going. I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? <laughs> and you just yeah. let them figure out when the time was right to have that conflict. But neither one knew that there was going to be." A, a conflict. A conflict. Right. That's so, amazing. So it allowed them to, it allowed us to kind of steer the narrative, but allow them the freedom to kind of do it when they, when when inspiration hit. And that's, I think, why we got so so much great, usable, realistic stuff. And and getting back to your 
to your mom and, and everyone yeah. feeling it's real. That Those little micro details, I mean, I even think non-film savvy people know when they're seeing something that feels contrived. And so we were very cognizant of making sure every frame of the movie felt like it was genuine. So in that, in that process, again, we weren't sure if it was going to work, but the collaboration with Greg and Ed and myself and, and Ben Rock, um, we all kept checking each other and making sure that, that how we were filming the movie was as much like it was a genuine documentary as possible. And the actors were a huge contributor to that as well. So this was like, what, an eight day shoot or so? Yeah, it was eight day shoot. We ended up going nine because it got rained out one day, which was miserable. But so now dur- during these days, how does it work out where you, you know that they have to hit their mark? Like somebody has to cause some kind of drama with some with somebody else mm-hmm. by a certain time. Yeah. Otherwise, you're not progressing the film, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, a good example is like, you know, again, getting back to the script, we each night was going to get a little bit progressively worse. So it was sort of mapped out. Like the first night was going to be sort of innocuous and not much. They were just sort of getting settled in. And we wanted to make sure that there was a plenty of levity at the beginning of the movie where they were kind of joking with each other, had right. some good funny moments. So you really got to like the characters. And second night, there's a little freakiness out there that kind of run across the kind of the, the rocks in the tree and stuff like that. So it's a little weird, but right. that could be anybody. It could, some trapper could be out there or whatever. And each night things got progressively weirder. So then by the time we get to a scene, like the tents shaking and there's children's voices outside the room, that was more, a lot of premeditation and setup. We'd have to tell the actors, okay, guys, here's what's going to happen. Something's going to happen to the tent. We didn't tell them exactly what would happen, but something's going to happen in the middle of the night and you're instructed to run in that direction. (laughs) All right. And there's a trail kind of mapped out for you and you'll see a little stick. Then you make a hard right and then hunker down in the, in the, in the grass. So we wanted them to have an understanding of where they needed to run so they wouldn't get hurt or just go off in 10 different directions and we wouldn't get any footage of anything. So, so we gave them blocking where they needed to run, what they needed to do when they they were cued to do so, but we didn't tell them exactly what was going to happen. So it allowed them to sort of react naturally, but also we had control of of the process. And there were times where things didn't work out 100%. We had to reset and do it again. Like the house is a perfect example. We had to shoot that over like two nights and redo takes because it was just very complicated. Going up in a house, which was originally condemned, you didn't want anybody walking out a window or anything like that. So we had to sort of map it out and, and shoot it in multiple takes. So it all looked like it was done in one seamless take. Where, where is that house in reference to the location we were filming? Was it really just in the middle of the woods? Or? It, well, I mean, there was, there was Seneca Creek State Park and there was another state park that was several miles away that where that house was. And it was just on the other side of an old military base. And the house, of course, is not there anymore, but... But so we had to do a company move from Seneca Creek State Park to, I can't remember the name of that park. To, um, I keep wanting to say Tabasco, but that's not it. It's <laughs> Patasca, something like that, um, State Park. And it was just adjacent to this old military base. So the house was there. And Matt Compton, who's like one of our location guys, found the house. and was perfect. So he and the crew and, you know, kind of guided by Ben Rock, kind of dressed the house, got rid of the old graffiti <laughs> that was there. <laughs> And made it somewhat safe for the actors to go into without killing themselves. But like I said, ultimately, we had to do that in multiple takes because it was pretty complex shot. But the first reveal of the house, which was sort of the inspired shot from the very first day we came up with the idea of the movie, was 
the first time they saw it when when Mike and Heather are walking in and you the trees clear away and you see that house and you hear Mike gasp that's they're seeing that house for the first time oh, and no wow. idea wow so they walked as far as they could and then we had to say cut because they were going in the wrong direction yeah <laughs> but but then we picked it up and we told them where they needed to walk and then we had of course we had Josh's voice on on um boom boxes upstairs and then downstairs to kind of guide them and oh wow so, so that was actually you set those up and same with the kids voices they yeah, were yeah. actually oh, there yeah, real actually there yeah yeah Whoa. yeah yeah tony coro who's our, our music composer and sound guy he he pre-recorded those voices those kids voices um which i believe were his cousins and um and sort of mixed them in such a way that they were really creepy and all that so yeah we were out there we hit play on the button and we were they're playing that's all practical so because again we wanted the actors to feel like this is kind of creepy, you know, <laughs> right. the same with Josh's voice calling out to them in, in the house. We had it on a boombox upstairs and we tried to time it where we had the one playing upstairs first. So they would go up and follow it. And then we turned on a boombox in the basement and, the, and Mike was instructed to run and leave Heather behind and he would run down to the basement. And then when he got down there, we stuck him in the corner and then we waited for the Heather to come down and she comes walking down and then we grabbed her and then said cut and then we had to lay the camera down and stage the camera just right and all that stuff to make it all look like it was one fluid move but oh. so there's a lot of logistics involved with those shots but you know, a lot of the other stuff was was done pretty much real time you know wow. like, Did, the whole, like the whole scene where map where, where mike said he kicked the map in the water and all yeah. that was all improvised they did all that on their own <laughs> oh my god it was awesome yeah did heather know what she was about to see at the bottom of the house with him facing the corner no like idea. that? No, she had no idea. Oh, did yeah. she, did she, I mean that, I still, yeah. I still take that memory of the first time I saw that scene with me forever as the scariest moment of any horror film I've ever seen. Yeah. Honestly, yeah. that scene just, it's like going on a roller coaster and it stops mid drop or something. Right. 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 Yeah. It's just like, Whoa! oh my yeah. God. And then it ends and you're just like, oh, <gasps> yep. And you just, you leave with that feeling and it just doesn't go away for like weeks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I, I wish we knew then what we know now, because at the time we came up with the idea and even after we shot it and even after we cut it in and even after we screened it, we weren't sure if that ending was working. And we had a test screening in New Jersey. Even after the movie sold at Sundance, Arvison had a test, test screening in, in uh, New Jersey and we were there in the audience movie played through and so then they cobbled together the the you know, people they pay to stay afterwards there's like 20 people and professional screener person gives them a bunch of questions and starts you know grilling that the, the remaining members like what do you think of this scene what do you think of that scene so we're all listening producers and myself and ed and we're getting the feedback from the audience members and ultimately it came down to the question what do you guys think of the ending and Everyone's asking quite well, we weren't sure what that meant and why was he standing in the corner and how come, so what happened to the camera? So there's just a bunch of questions are getting like, <laughs> no one knew what was going on, blah, blah, blah. And then to Greg Hale's credit, our producer, he wrote down a little piece of paper and handed a question up to the, to the questioner and he was instructed to ask, were you scared? Did the ending scare you? And so he asked that question and 19 to 20 hands went up. Yeah. So we yeah. knew yeah. it was a scary ending, even though they didn't know why they were scared. They knew it was scary, but it still spooked the artists and execs enough to go, you know, we should shoot some alternate endings just to cover our bases in case 
it doesn't ultimately work. So we were so broke at the time. And even though we sold at Sundance, you, you never see the advance until like a year later. So we're still like, we need some money. Right. And so uh, we'll, we'll pay to shoot five more endings. And, and you know, so that's a normal production budget. So they pay us to go, yeah, we'll go do it. So we went off and shot five alternate endings. And they were all the endings that Ed and I originally kind of tossed that we thought were too cheesy. But we went and shot them and um, we cut them all in and showed them to the executives at Artisan. And of course, nobody liked them. And to Artisan's credit, they kept the original ending. So, wow. but yeah, it's one of those things you just, you just never know. You just never really know until it's out in the zeitgeist, it's up on screen, and people see it and, and it has an impact. And that's, um, again, to, even as an artist to this day, you're, you're constantly grappling with, is what I'm doing going to work? <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. And you never really know until you release it in the wild. You know, here, so, here in L.A., Lauren and I went to the screening, it was artisan screening, but at the time it was not a movie screening. It's like you're invited to this, watch this documentary. You right. Know? Yep. So it was still, we're still buying into the whole thing that, hey, that oh. footage is real. You know? yeah, 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 we were buying it big so, time. Yeah, so we yeah. sat there with the theater. It was like a Lindley Theater in, on yep. Pico in West LA. <laughs> okay. I don't know if it's still there, but we sat there, we watched the movie and the movie was over and we just sat there in silence. We're just stunned. We're like, what the fuck you know yeah i love that i love that stayed with you i slept with the lights on that i I love that now there's some of my favorite memories when we some of the early screenings like you know we went to the Eccles and you know we had the movie was becoming so popular at sundance they scheduled an an extra screening at the Eccles, which is like a 1200 seat screening it's a great venue and we're going in and roger ebert's coming going in to watch our movie. Like, hey, it's Roger Ebert, you know. <laughs> hey, Roger. Hi, I'm going to go see your movie. It's like, okay, no pressure. <laughs> but at the end of that screen, it was that same response. It was just like, you know, credits are rolling. Everyone's like, what the fuck did I just see? Right? Yeah. <laughs> and then when the credits started rolling, everyone's like, yeah, I started cheering. Like one of the best experiences ever. But, but there was that moment of like, stunned silence yeah an entire theater full of people was just like oh my god you know so yeah there's no better feeling man (laughs) that's when when it's everything's sitting on all cylinders it's really a great feeling yeah the funny thing is the movie ends you know where the camera drops right and it's just it keeps rolling right yeah and it's stuttering yeah and it's like maybe going out of focus maybe something and we and we were like how long do we hold on that shot so well we went quite (laughs) long after it's a little bit uncomfortable It's like a little bit too long, but just enough. And then sh- goes to black. We were still speculating. We were saying, but the witch, did you see the witch is on there. Oh my God. I can't tell you how many like analysis of our film that people have saw stuff in the woods that we never had in there. Like, hey, did you notice on frame 27,300 that there was a face floating just above the, like, really? I never noticed that. Uh, <laughs> speaking, so, of, speaking of, there's a scene where it was after they discover the stick men figures yeah. that night. When Heather runs out of the tent, right, and she's screaming, "What the fuck is that? What the fuck? What did she see? Because we don't see that." Well, we originally had uh, the plan of that scene. Here's a perfect example of something, you know, best laid plans, right? <clears throat> we intended in that scene when we were, again, when we shot those eight days, we were still thinking that there was going to be post analysis, right? We, it was going to be a normal documentary. So what we wanted was. Something like that, where there was some figure in the background where you could p- 
pause the blurry frame and see, look, there's a humanoid figure in the background. Ooh, how creepy. So we had a guy, a friend of ours come out and he was in white long johns. It was like end of October and super cold out in, Mar in the Maryland woods. But this guy was in white long johns and we're going to have him placed in the woods and trust that Heather running along with that camera with that spotlight in the front would just catch a glimpse of him in the woods. And that's what she's reacting to. Oh. Um, but it never read. It never read on camera. So, uh, and I really felt bad for the guy because he fell in the creek. He got oh no, wet. yeah, so it was like freezing <laughs> in the long johns. Yeah, we yeah. all we all had to kind of donate an article of our clothing to kind of keep him from freezing. <laughs> oh it. no, but um, but yeah, when, when we watched the footage after it got developed and we watched the footage, we said we don't. All that was for nothing. And there was there was there was no no image of our guy in the background, and we were kind of bummed out about it, but. It ended up working anyway. No, that scene works great because it's it's still scary. Yeah. You're not yeah. sure what she saw. Yeah. Who cares? I'm scared. You know? Yeah, yeah. So she's, <laughs> but that's what she's reacting to. Is that is the is the guy that never never made it to film? <laughs> so I have to ask: Was there anything like really creepy that happened being alone in the woods that wasn't oh, planned? Yeah. Oh yeah, just being in the woods. You don't realize how dark it gets out there because when you watch movies, it's the woods are always conveniently lit, right? Yeah. It's like a full moon and everything's all lit. <laughs> <laughs> or they've got like Musco lighting just raking the woods. It's like, this is, well, it's, I can see everything. But in real life, it's pitch black. You can't see your hand in front of your face. So it's really, it's scary because even though, even if you don't believe in ghosts and goblins and whatnot, there's animals out there. Yeah. And a lot of them are nocturnal. So they like to come out and, you know, sniff around at night and whatnot. But, I remember this one time, and we might have had a couple beers after this, but anyway, we, <laughs> we were out all in the woods. It was me and Ed, and I think Lonnie was there, Ed's friend, um, our friend, but I think Neil was there. So there's like five or six of us out there in the woods, and I don't know, I can only remember why we were out there. It was like after we wrapped on the day, and we're out there just yucking it up out in the middle of the woods, and it was dark, and we looked through the trees, and there was this light. It was just a like look like a flashlight, and we're and we stop and like, you see that, and like, is that Greg coming towards us? Is that someone coming towards us? And we see the light. And we all stop and we just see the light moving. We swear that it's moving as if somebody's uh -huh. walking with it towards us, and we're like, I think someone's coming, and. You've never seen a group of grown men psych each other out yeah. more than a stupid. It was probably a porch light in his house. Yeah. And we're like, dude, should we run? I don't know. What are you doing? I don't know. Should we take cover? And we were freaking ourselves out, man. It was so funny. And after about half an hour, and it didn't, it eventually never got to, it's got to be a porch light. Yeah, all right. Okay. So we kind of, kind of, we, we, we sort of got over it, but we were, we were, pretty freaked out there for oh, a while man. but it's just the it's that animal fight or flight psychology yeah. that kicks in man when you're in that spot that place of vulnerability you're out of your element you're no longer top of the food chain you're in the woods or in the middle of the water or whatever you're like you feel very vulnerable that's what horror plays on who designed the, I mean, the now iconic Blair Witch stick figure? Well, the original design was something I, I, I came up with the notion of the stick man, but it was more like a thatched, like a really bad thatched man. <laughs> I guess it would look more like a scarecrow. Sure. So I, I still have a drawing of it, a, an artistic rendering of it uh, hanging up on my wall at, at, at my office of like the first sort of 
artistic kind of rendition of what the stick man was going to be like. And so when we got to, got to Maryland, I have this drawing with this. This is what I want the stick man to be a general idea of it. And, and Ben rock looked at it and said, well, that's going to take me forever to make one of those things. I mean, it's like, it's like three thousand sticks just to make one stick. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so to his credit, he brought in the idea of it just being a simple kind of rune, you know, kind of based on a rune that's tied together with twine, which is much better than the idea I had um, and much more economical, obviously. But yeah, so it was inspired by what I suspect, and I, I'm not 100% sure, but I remember coming up with the idea of it. Like, it, again, it was the same sort of thing with the house idea. Like, I was thinking, imagine walking through the woods and you see a humanoid thatched man hanging from the treetops what would you do <laughs> like all right this is not good yeah <laughs> this, can't be good. this cannot be good i don't right. think that's friendly but but you but what immediately works on your mind is like oh, some intelligent mind made that and they went to all the trouble of hanging it in the tree so it must have some meaning behind it right so it just freaks you out but so that idea Later on, I was like, oh, I wonder where it came from. I wasn't really sure where it came from. And it wasn't until years later that I rewatched Planet of the Apes. And there's a scene in the original movie where they come across those, those kind of thatched men, like across on that far ridge. Right. I'm like, I wonder if I came, I wonder if that's Could've what been, yeah. it might have oh, been, it might have subconsciously influenced me. But, but yeah, Ben Rock has, took that general idea and made it simpler and, and more in kind of, what I think is a cooler idea where it looks more like a rune and ultimately became the iconic sort of, you know, logo for the movie. But, but if you look at the original film, there's a lot of different kinds of stick men. There's like big right. burly ones we have hanging from. And then there's like the, the normal kind of runes, simple stick man. But so there's a lot, they, they made a bunch of different kinds. My, we all sort of pitched in and made our own stick men and, my wife was there helping out, and and uh, so everyone had their own versions of the stick. Yeah. <laughs> Some better than one, others. One was cute. Yeah, yeah. One, was, one, was, one was fluffy. We had, we had names for them. But uh, that, that scene in the movie, though, where they come across them, mm. was that uh, you know? Did they know that? Did they know that they were going to. No, they had no idea. They're like when we we again, it was just like follow the GPS. You'll know when you. When you see it, you'll know you're in the right spot. So just follow the GPS to the waypoint, and when you arrive, you'll know it. And that's all that we told them. But were they instructed to be either frightened or... Well, pretty much that sort of goes without saying. Like, yeah. whenever you come across something in the woods, it's not going to be a happy time. Right. So, but for us, the stick man scene, from a story standpoint, was sort of the transitional scene where... They were no longer in Kansas. Like that, everything else could sort of be like explained away, but Stickman hanging in the woods, that's like, okay, we're, there's something here that's a little bit more complex than, right. than, than up to this point. So, so when they go into the woods and come upon the Stickman, they're seeing them for the first time. And they're like, holy jeez, you know, and their reactions are, so classic because you know obviously they know they're in a movie they know they've gotten to the point where they've seen what they need to what they're supposed to see but then the acting kicks in and they just go holy shit what is this and what and and they really played it up well so 
So that's one of my favorite moments because it's, it's, I think, the perfect blend of controlling the narrative, controlling the process and the blocking, but having real natural reactions to something they didn't expect to see. And that's, that's, that's really, really fun when, that, when you can pull that off. Yeah. When casting, how important was trust? That's everything. I mean, yeah. that's in, in even like normal movies, it's without that with your cast and your crew, but especially with your cast, you, you don't, you don't have anything. And, and especially on Blair Witch, when you're going into a venture that is not like a normal movie. I mean, basically we're, especially for a female saying, Hey, why don't you come on out and camp with two dudes in the woods for eight, for eight days? Like, okay. <laughs> So it was a, a tremendous amount of trust on their part to allow us to shoot this really unorthodox way where they're effectively camping for eight straight days in the woods. And then on our part where we're like basically allowing them to shoot, you know, a large portion of the movie, yeah. we're just trusting that they're not going to not hit the record button when we tell them, <laughs> you yeah, know, right. that sort of thing. So <laughs> right. it was, it was scary and experimental and we really didn't know if any of it was going to work, but without that trust, it, it definitely wouldn't have worked. Yeah. It probably went both ways, you know, the yeah, trust. It has to. I think to me as a director, so much of my job is in the casting process. It really is. You, you, we saw hundreds of people through auditions and we set up a kind of a unique audition process so we could really test people's improv skills. And by the time we got it narrowed down to those three guys, we pretty much knew they could pull it off. They, they had the chops to do it and the smarts to do it. And um, so then it was just a matter of like, we needed to set a stage for them so they could, they, they could be at their best. So, but a lot of that research and a lot of that due diligence is in the audition process is making sure you got the right folks. And them keeping the anonymity, like when everybody was speculating, like who, where are these people? Like I didn't hear a peep of where these people were. Yeah. Yeah. That was artists. And they're like, they were able to keep it up for about two weeks before the, the gag was up. But, but yeah, they, they asked, you know, we're going to do the initial release of the movie, get people talking about it. We're going to platform it. So they did select theaters for the first week, I guess it was. And then it went wide. And so they said for a couple of weeks, just lay low. Don't tell anybody you're around and let people just kind of <laughs> speculate. And that worked. It, yeah. it, it was it was it was very effective. And definitely a sign of the times of uh, you know infancy yeah. in the internet because oh. that would have been impossible yeah. now, right? No it was way a phenomenon now. that it was just the right time, yeah, right? just the right time. So much of it is timing, and we were sort of the nexus of all these things. Like video was just sort of coming into its own, yep. and MTV just came out with Real World, so they had reality shows, and so it was sort of sensitizing audiences to kind of embrace that style of shooting. <laughs> So it's all this mixed together in, in the planets sort of just aligned and you get something like a Blair Witch every now and then. So it's, it was, um, a lot of it was just timing, just, just dumb luck. <laughs> Where did Josh go when he, when he went missing? Did you have to like keep him out of the area or is he crouching in the woods with you guys? You no, know, he was gone. He was so glad to be out. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, ah, ah. <laughs> so I took a shower. He ate a full meal at Denny's. He's like, I'm out of here. He was very happy to be pulled out of the woods, but. But no, he did a great job, and and uh, he's a he's a great filmmaker in his own right, and 
but yeah, he was he was pretty relieved to to, to be pulled out and and originally the original idea was to leave Josh in and pull Mike out. Oh, and we made we made that sort of course correction, kind of called an audible based on our dailies reviews and both Ed and I were shadowing a lot of the time, the actors as they were doing their performances and, and, you know, a few days into the shoot, Ed and I sort of pow out and go, you know, I think it would be better if we pulled Josh out, not Mike, because Josh and Heather were sort of at each other's throat the, almost the whole time. And Mike was sort of, sort of the intermediary between the two of them. So we were concerned that if we left Josh in, that it would just be, a bitch fest for the entire movie. Wow. <laughs> right. So we said, let's, yeah. let's pull Josh out and leave Mike in there. And then Mike's forced to sort of like step up and work with Heather. And so I think that was the right call ultimately, but that's an example of like seeing and watching the performances, making adjustments on the fly and based on, based on performance. But both Mike and Heather didn't know, what was going to happen the next night either. So when we pulled Josh out, they were like, where did Josh go? <laughs> That's great. Josh wow. is no longer with us. <laughs> oh, and they and they told us later, it's like, we just hoped he didn't quit or something. Right, right. <laughs> and we're like, what should we do? <laughs> Maybe he said, I'm out of here. So they weren't sure about what was going down either. So we, but, um, but yeah, they just stayed in character and played it out. So it was pretty cool. So what started happening to the town of Burkittsville? Like what I remember, like people were trying to take signs like after the movie, like what happened to the town? Did it get crazy? It, it got crazy for a while. And um, I've always felt kind of bad about that because it's like we were debating on whether or not to kind of go with the real name of Burkittsville at the time and or come up with a fictional name. And of course, in those days, we're like, well, who's going to see this movie? No one's going to care. You know, if. We use some little town in the middle of Maryland that no one's ever heard of. And right. our movies, you know, it's like a $10,000 villain. No one's ever going to see it. So who cares? So we just stuck with the name, right? Because it's a cool name and we like the look of it. And we only shot there for an afternoon. It wasn't even a big deal. Little did we know, right? So <laughs> tourist attraction. They're holding annual festivals there. So, <laughs> so yeah, it became a big thing and, and and problematic because you know there's just some there's just the people that are just jerks and they'll rip down signs and, and and vandalize and stuff like that. So they had to kind of rein that in, and it's tapered off a lot since. And certainly some of the local residents were sort of over it, which I don't blame them at all. But then, of course, there were others that we emailed us like, "Hey, man, I sold a bunch of T-shirts." I'm like, "Oh, good, good for you, man! Good <laughs> 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 working, <laughs> turning lemon, lemonade from lemons." Yeah, so, yeah. But, um, but yeah, it's. I think it's calmed down a lot, and and it's still sort of people kind of go on a like an annual pilgrimage to 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 uh, Burkittsville, and it's still has the same character. It hasn't changed a bit since I was. Since we were there 20 years ago, it looks exactly the same. Is there, a, is there a good juicy story where things went really bad and you guys had to call like that safe word to like intervene? Oh yeah. We had that rained out night when we got really rained out. We were completely discombobulated because it was raining really hard and the actors typically they sort of meander from point A to point B from one way point to the next that they're doing their performances and they're interacting with each other. And so we sort of got into this routine where... When they went, they broke camp in the morning and got to the camp for the next night, they, you know, sort of an all day thing. So we had time for us to break down our base camp 
and move it to the new location in anticipation of them arriving. But it was raining that day. So they were like, <laughs> they were, let's get to into that, set up our tent. And they got to their campsite way early, way before we were able to kind of reconnoiter and get ourselves moved over there. And they were out of radio range. So they're calling on their radio. Their tent's soaked. They're soaked. They're miserable. Oh, they're no. cold. No one's answering the radio. We're going out of radio contact. And we're like, it was just a, a comedy of errors where we just, everything's just sort of broke down at once. And they said, they said, we're out. Call, they're calling the safe word. And they went out of the woods and they found a neighbor because their house was fairly close by. So they, we got a phone call from the neighbor. Hey, we've got your three actors here. And they're you know, like, uh-oh. <laughs> so we went and picked them up and we sort of called a mulligan on that night. And they went back to the hotel, cleaned up. And we just told them, don't take a... Don't take a shower or anything. Just right. one yeah, yeah. You know, don't get too clean. Continuity, yeah, guys. Continuity. <laughs> but um, I, I suspect they probably pigged out and probably took a warm shower. Which right. I can't really blame them. <clears throat> so we had to reset and do the next day um, once the once the rain you know let up and we were able to kind of pick up where we left off. And you know we were pretty fortunate because had it rained more than that one time, we just would have been screwed. Yeah. yeah. So we had one bad day where we had to sort of call it and, and uh, kind of reset, but. They went right back into character and they picked up right where they left off. And then, and in some ways, it it was a good reset for everybody because we were exhausted too. I mean, because it was unlike a normal shoot where you're, even on a long day, you're doing a 12 or 13 hour day, you wrap at the end of the night and then you can go back and sort of reset. Well, we were shooting 20, it was like a 24 seven thing. I mean, we just, it was round the clock and we were having to work in shifts. And we're sleeping out in the tent out in the woods. And okay, remember, got to get up at 2 a.m. and shake the tent. <laughs> really? Is that gag really that good? <laughs> Can we do it in post? Because I'm tired. So, yeah, we had to be on the whole time. So we were pretty exhausted. So the reset day sort of helped us out. that We could like <laughs> and, and get in a few hours sleep. And so the next time when we were resetting, everybody's a little fresher and you know, kind of ready to do the final push into that house scene at the end so it ended up working out wow so in the aftermath of all this how close have you guys been to the ip of blair witch moving forward i mean not too much and like when they did the sequel right after our film came out it was artisan really wanted to capitalize on the on the blair phenomenon i mean right. it was just reaching a kind of critical mass after i would say I don't know, six to eight months after the movie came out, it was getting way overhyped. You can almost track the press. Like initially the press completely embraced the movie because it was sort of like the secret in thing to kind of like. And then once it became really big, then it's like, well, no one's reading those articles anymore. So now I need to start hating it. So they'll read my article. <laughs> so then the backlash started formulating on it. And so Ed and I were like, telling artisan it's probably best just to let it all die down let the backlash die down give it a year or two everything kind of the dust settles and everyone's just going to remember the good times right and then we can pick up where we left off and maybe come up with another idea and explore one of the other sort of episodes of our mythology right and they're like nope we want to go do one right now like okay so they sort of um took it upon themselves to 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 do their own movie their own way with their own director with they, they hired joe berlinger to to kind of come in and direct he's a great director yeah, we were is, really yeah. we were thought that was a great choice and um 
but we got the script and we looked at the script and you know to our surprise they sort of broke the mythology it was kind of a, a self-referential movie about our film it's like well that's not that wasn't the whole point of our movie so right. it's, ah, that's nice thanks for your input and off they went so in that respect we didn't have much input and even on the sequel that just came out you know in 2016 we didn't i got to go to lionsgate they let me read the script and so what do you so what do you think dan like, like what am i gonna say like well it's cool right yeah and what i did like about the script is that they stuck true to the mythology yeah so yes. that, that, the continuity that, of the story yeah yeah, yeah. so story. that and you can tell those guys were true fans of the original film so right. that 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 i i do appreciate so and I thought the movie was a good movie, and even the sequel back in the day wasn't a bad movie on, on its own merits. It's just it broke the mythology, and and so yeah. To answer your question, we haven't had a lot. They haven't been too interested in our input, which is sort of ironic. Right, um, right. Right. You guys are geniuses. <laughs> we're, but we're gonna have someone else. Do it. Uh, okay. Well, whenever you're ready, we're we're hanging out. You want us to come back in and take Ooh, a stab uh, at it, but but, but the yeah. exciting thing is, obviously, you do, like you said, you you have script ideas. There's story ideas in this universe. I guess. I mean, look, I've I've been preaching this gospel both Ed and I for years, and it's like we we set up a universe, a Blair Witch universe that is by design to be explored. And as a creative person, I love the idea of having a standalone Rust and Parr movie or an origin film that's that's feels like The Witch. You know, it has this a period piece. Sure. Like, it could That'd be, be amazing. Super creepy. <laughs> yeah. Right? And yeah. and you know it doesn't have to say Blair Witch, you know, but you know it's part of the of the Blair universe, right. but I'm watching the Ellie Kedward story, right? Or Eileen Treacle or, you know, so there's, there's plenty to mine from what we've created and what's already been established. And all you have to do is imply that it's part of the Blair Witch universe. That's all you need. Cause the fans will know, mm -hmm. right. oh my God, they're doing a Rustin Parr movie. I'm in. Yep. So this has been our pitch to Lionsgate since day one. It's like, you've got all the episodes ready to be done. And let's do it in a cool way. Like, like how how cool would it be to make Rust and Parr like a, a black and white noir? Yeah, right. be so great. How awesome would so that great. be? So cool. <laughs> right. And so I don't know. I just think it's it's ripe to be done, and I think it still can be done that way. But you don't need to go back and dip into the same well that our original film did to that because that. That in and of itself is one episode. The three filmmakers getting lost in the woods, it w which was a found footage home movie. That's just, that's its own thing. And then you could do a historical period piece like The Witch, you know, of the Ellie Kedward story. And so you could have four or five of these movies that are all, all part of the Blair Witch canon that are their own standalone films, their own standalone style and look. And I think that would be so cool to be able to do that. Yeah. And I think it would be really popular. Every fan I've ever talked about that with they like that would be awesome oh yeah, you yes. know? yeah. yeah. definitely so i don't know i mean it, it, we've we've certainly have pitched this to the lionsgate folks and on i mean the, i kind of get it i mean the that's a more expensive venture than doing another found footage movie like they just did right so doing a black and white noir of rustin parr period piece or a or a, a you know an la kedward story it's just a, it's a much more expensive movie but I also think it's a much more commercial film. Sure. At the end of the day, because sure. you ha you do have a 
a rabid built-in fan base for the movie that would turn out in droves. And if you just do the movie on its own merits, really make it a good movie, I think it'll be great. It would be, it would be really successful. That was wild when talking about this. I mean, you guys completely reinvented the model of doing things at such a low budget and making a ton of money, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. What do we know? Yeah. That's incredible. But speaking of that, you have been very prolific since Blair Witch. You've produced the rest stop movies. You did yeah. one that I really love too. With we had Shane West in here. Oh yeah, yeah. It was in the the presence. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. 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 That was a great movie. Yeah, we love that film with Mira Savino and and, uh, Tom Provost was directing it. And yeah, we've been uh, kept pretty busy. And, you know, I did a movie called The Objective, which we shot in um, Morocco, which has sort of become a cult favorite over in in Europe and and whatnot. That was a lot of fun. And I shot a movie called uh, Under the Bed, which uh, was on on A&E and that we did that in Salt Lake City with uh, Beverly D'Angelo and Hannah New and... So that was a lot of fun. And now I just finished, I literally just finished editing a movie called Skyman, which is about a guy named Carl Merriweather. That's more like the, I think, takes a page out of Blair Witch style than any other movie I've done so far, because it's sort of like a docudrama. It's not a horror film, sort of sci-fi character study, but, but about this guy that claims he was visited by an alien in the desert while camping with his father. And now 30 years later, he's compelled that this alien's going to come back. For a reunion so we're i'm documenting him going back out to the desert to have this reunion oh that's <laughs> oh, cool. That's so cool so but yeah and we did six movies the, under the raw feed banner yeah the rest stop films and i did i directed one called believers and so yeah we've been very very busy <laughs> so it's been fun been very lucky and now hey f- speaking of ufos now's the time man with uh, tom delong and those oh, videos that yes. just got like verified I'm from telling you man it's like we just hit it right it's like there's a whole new resurgence of the zeitgeist and of course the raid on area 51 yes all, like, right you were like oh my god i can't believe this is happening now <laughs> someone's more Getting my movie. <laughs> I mean, I've got a, I literally just got a text from a guy that went out there. Said, hey, Dan, I got some footage for you. It's cool. Send it my way. Yeah. I'll stick it in the movie. <laughs> so, yeah, that's sort of kind of a resurgence as well. And um, and I spent a year shooting that film because <clears throat> I did it very much in, in the method approach where my lead actor is a guy by the name of Michael Selle. He's a super great guy. The main character, Carl sort of um has asperger's he's a little bit of kind of an odd 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 character and he's absolutely believes that this alien's coming back to kind of reunite with him and he's sort of on this exploratory mission to find out what you know what what is, what does it all mean what's his purpose and so i took him and we went to a couple of big ufo festivals there's a big one in portland at the McMinimus festival we went to the roswell festival and i just had him in character Oh, the whole time. Oh, and wow. I'm shooting him in character, interacting with people, going to panels and the whole bit, all in character. So, um, and nobody knew who the hell I was or wh- who we were. So uh, we have a lot of footage from the, from that. So we're shooting it again, sort of real time, sort of fact or fiction, but controlling the narrative, but letting the actors sort of interact and improvise. And, That's and, so exciting. Yeah. <laughs> That's so exciting whole, to watch. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. It was so much fun. And then, yeah, our main principal photography was, you know, several weeks in the, in the high desert in Apple Valley, just by Victorville. And, uh, 
We had two containers out there, which was a bug out shelter. That's where, you know, her dad had a bug out shelter and that's where they saw the original, you know, visitation. And so Carl convinces his sister, Gina, and his best friend to go out with him out into the, out of the desert and wait for this alien to arrive. And, and I'm the filmmaker kind of documenting it all. And I'm playing myself in the movie. So oh, you, okay. you hear my voice off camera, but I'm it's like this Earl Morris sort of documentary where I'm questioning him as, as he's doing all this stuff. And so I'm technically a character in the movie. So. Interesting. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a lot of fun. We had so much fun shooting it. So yeah, I'm very proud of it. It's not a horror movie. Some people may be expecting another horror movie, but it was me wanting to exercise this muscle of this sort of character study, sort of a sci-fi. It was a composite of characters I grew up with and read about and studying like UFO stuff. And like, this would make a cool, I think, kind of a love letter to that subculture. And yeah. So yeah, it's, and I really want to do sort of like this UFO tour where we go to all the major UFO festivals throughout the country and screen the movie. So we oh, do sort wow. of a four wall screening of the movie at all the UFO festivals, which would be a blast. Yeah, that'd so, be incredible. Yeah. It's going to have like tour shirts of the Skyman and have all the tour dates in the back of the shirt. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. Like a, like a band. <laughs> it's so awesome. You got you to talk to uh, George Nori, get him on board. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, well, we've got like four or five like big UFO name experts and stuff like that that have, have contributed to the movie. They've got some cameo roles in it. So we really did our research on it. I wow. mean, we're, we're, we've, we've got, um, there's a lot of if you're sort of a UFO enthusiast, you'll see references in the movie like, oh, they knew they know what they're talking about. You know, we're referencing things in the movie that they, that they would definitely pick up on. Please tell but, me you got Bob Lazar. Bob Lazar. Oh, I mean, I mean we don't have him on camera, right. but we talk about him. And That's he's cool. And um, <laughs> but the guy Jeremy Corbell who shot the movie, the latest Bob Lazar movie, yeah. is, is going to do a cameo for us. So, so yeah, it was just a lot of fun, and that's. I can't ask for more than that. You know? so Whether That's it's cool. commercially viable or not, we'll see. But we got into Austin, which is a really great festival, prestigious festival. We've submitted to a few others, but we're hoping that'll be sort of our launch pad to go into this UFO tour yeah. Next, yeah. next spring, which should be a blast. So, But you can follow, you can check things out. We have a Facebook page and you go to skymanthemovie.com and you can check out the, all the stuff there as well. So Very cool. Yeah. That's awesome. That's us. I can't wait. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You guys would probably really dig it. So, yeah. Well, that's the thing, the whole, like the people are into true crime, horror, all that stuff. It mm. spins out into the it's, UFOs and so everything. Much so part of the family. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I was yeah. inspired by Bigfoot as a kid. Like I said, I had a UFO club and Blair, which all of all my friends that know me, some of whom helped me on Skyman. All of those guys that knew me when I was a kid, they thought, oh, when we saw Blair, we, that was Danny. We knew that was Danny. <laughs> so Danny. So yeah, I was doing that sort of factor fiction, hoaxy documentary stuff when I was a kid. So, so it's all plays into that. I hesitate to call it a genre, but it's definitely a style mm -hmm. of shooting, a, a kind of a conceit that I find is very effective. And it's also very freeing. I mean, I, I really get a, a, a real charge out of allowing the actor to just go, to do what pops in their head. I get so many great little moments when I allow the actors that kind of freedom. So when you're shooting a movie with a premise 
and a saw that allows for that, then it's it, it can be really magical. It's 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 a lot of fun. Well, yeah. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. It was thank honestly you. a blast. Dude, this Seriously. is great. Twenty this is years, like, twenty years. Yeah, Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. I know it's it's a little scary. I've got people that come up to me and like, you're a grown person. I wasn't even born when you movie came out. Really great. <laughs> well, now so, yeah. you know. Now our kids get to discover it. And yeah. Yeah. I'm looking yeah. forward to that. That's guys. Yeah. Seriously, that's going to be. Like one of the major, you know, you know, Texas Chainsaw, Blair Witch. That's yeah. a classic now. You know? Definitely. All right, Dan. It's humbling. <laughs> well, well deserved. Well thank deserved, you. my man. All right. Thank you, thank so, you so much. much. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. That was the Boo Crew Podcast episode 95. Special thanks to our guest, Daniel Myrick. Follow Daniel on Twitter at Daniel R. Myrick and hit up SkymanTheMovie.com for all you need to know about his new film. Production music for this episode provided by Powerman 5000. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying, sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Boo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye! A bloody disgusting podcast network, home of the Boo Crew, for horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy, for disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.